there's a conviction, a positive dream or vision that you have about things. I mean, that's not true for everything, but I think for something like quitting your job to do something on your own, like a startup, or in this case, you know, open source full time, I don't see what else would convince you, you know, in your rational brain to actually do something like this. That's Henry Zhu, maintainer of Babel. And this is the Readme Podcast, a podcast that takes a peek behind the curtain at some of the most impactful open source projects and the developers who make them happen. I am B. Dougie, aka Brian Douglas. And I'm Kathy Korvac. In every episode, Kathy and I invite a maintainer or open source developer into our studio to explore their work, their story, and where those two meet. In this episode, we speak with Henry Zhu, maintainer of Babel, a JavaScript transpiler. In our conversation, we discover how Henry first got into programming, what it means to be a maintainer of Babel, how he builds community, what are the challenges he faces, and of course, the triumphs. Henry shared his story with us, starting right from the beginning. My parents are in software as well. People like to say that says something like, oh, it's in your blood, stuff like that. But what I usually point out is that they did not really encourage me to do uh, programming because they were concerned of like I had some um, I guess like health problems early on. There wasn't anything like serious, like it's not like cancer or anything. It's just like I think a lot of kids now they grow up with like allergies, so I had that, especially like you know peanuts and those kinds of things. And even back then, like people weren't as concerned about those as before. You know, kind of. Uh, I remember going to school and people would bring like food all the time that was that had peanuts in there, that kind of thing. I remember going on like airplane flights where they still serve it. But yeah, I had that. Uh, I had asthma. Um, I have eczema still. Um, so a bunch of those things kind of just add up when you're a kid. And and I think it's easy to kind of look back and be like, well, that all sucked, and it did. But I, you know, honestly, a lot of it did help shape who I am um, in a positive way of just being able to write to other people that are dealing with stuff. So I kind of learned that I liked programming on my own. Uh, I think it might have been through, I mean, people say this like video games and you're like, oh, I want to be able to make things. Um, I think early on, um, yeah, I think you just want to be creative and it seemed like you only need a laptop or you know something small to be able to try things out. And I think I was interested in that. So I think I was looking into stuff like Flash and animation, which is funny because I ended up working at Adobe. <laughs> but then I never really learned how to use like any of our stuff. Um, but I guess because tech is so, I'm not gonna say it's not to be important, but just like such an ubiquitous part of our life now that like if you say you're a programmer, like people think certain things about you, it's like oh wow, you work at this place or you're doing this. Um, there's an aspect of I don't know, like influence, I guess. Does that change when you say you're an open source programmer? Yeah, that's a good question. I think half the time people don't know what that is, right? My distillment is like, you know, it's Wikipedia, but for code or something like that, um, which tends to work because you, you just try to use things that they know. Because um, my definition, yeah, I think tends to change based on who I'm talking to. But then they'll ask you, like, what do you work on? And like, it's a fun little deep dive into like what open source is or um, how they think of it, um, and the question of like, oh, how do you make money because you're doing it for free? And um, and I think that's the cool thing where like I feel like a lot of jobs, if you just say you work at some place, oh, like that's cool. But then when they start asking questions that they might not normally ask for a, a normal job, um, and they have a lot of opinions on that or. It's more relatable because it's it's not really technical, like some of the questions. 
Henry did go on to become a programmer and a well-known open source one. Open source is ubiquitous in programming, but very few programmers choose to contribute directly with technical contributions. It was at his first job that he discovered an interest in continuing to open source through his coworker and now his GitHub sponsor. And his name is Jonathan Neal, and he worked on a project called Normalize CSS. And it's funny because I actually uh, reached out to him recently, and I haven't talked to him for like five years since he kind of convinced me to do open source. Um, and all he did was just like, hey, you should try it out. And it was, to me, it was like one person was telling me, hey, this is possible. Because um, I think I stumbled into it. Like um, I was like, oh, there's Bootstrap. And then I tried it out. And it's like, oh, this is open source. People actually work on this stuff. I wonder who it is. And he was like, oh, you can do it too. I just needed someone to tell me it was okay, I guess, which is kind of interesting, right? Someone that you knew in person, not just someone online um, that was kind of like, if I tweeted out right now, everyone should do open source. It's like, maybe that would help some people. Uh, but I think a lot of times you just need one person to kind of be there for you to, to say, you know, it's okay to start. I was going to say that's huge. Having that, that mentor, having the person to shepherd you into the project, uh, it makes the, the biggest difference between this sort of randomly grabbing an issue and hoping for the best. So what was the introduction to Babel and that eventually made you decide to do it full time? My short thing is that when I got into programming again, uh, you know, it was through games. And then I got into data visualization a little bit with like D3, like briefly. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, this is cool. Like I cared about like data. It's so funny. Like I'm talking about data all the time, right? I, I, I think I wanted to be like a, um, doing statistics and like data mining or whatever it's called, machine learning, all that stuff. And then I, I realized, I was like, I think I care more about the people side of it. Um, not really, I don't want to use the word optimize people, but like how do you help people be um, more effective at what they do without the necessarily numbers stuff. Um, so I kind of went away from that. And I was like, oh, visualization is cool because it's like you could see the effects of moving things around. And then um, when I was at working at that company in Georgia, we, we were using a linter, a JavaScript linter called JSCS. And a linter is just a, a sort of like spell check, right, for your code. Um, and it tells you when you know, either things could be wrong or you can like um, have different spacing or quotes, stuff like that, right? And people tend to use, uh, at least in JavaScript, we use like ESLint and Prettier. Um, so that was kind of an old version of that. And the way linters work are very similar to compilers. Um, and so somehow, like through JSCS, I found out about ESLint. Through ESLint, I found out about Babel. And then I kind of slowly found out how they were related. Babel converts code, your input to output, but linters just read your input and throw an error. And so the first part of it is very similar. Um, it's just like a little bit more added on. The discovery of open source would eventually change the course of Henry's life. He was hired at Adobe for what seemed to be his dream job, but eventually quit to do his dream job, maintaining Babel full-time. Yeah, I guess some people would ask, like, why did you decide to quit? Because that sounds like a great gig. And it was. Um, and that, yeah, that's a huge conversation into... I guess it's a, yeah, it was a pretty personal decision to do that. And, and in a lot of ways, it's not... When you know, we use the, like, the right thing to do or, or the smart thing to do in the moment, if you just saw everything on paper... But I guess that's sort of, you know, even talking about the allergy thing of like, you kind of have to take a risk, <laughs> like some level of risk, right? It's like, 
otherwise, I would just not eat anything, you know. And same with this. It's like otherwise, we're just gonna stay at our job forever. Um, and I almost at this point, I feel like there's there's times in your life where um, not leaving is its own risk. Because I think other people are like, well, aren't you supposed to stay in your stable job? But you know, they could let you go. Um, your team might get you know removed or, or various. Anything can still happen. It's just that we're we're trying to hold on to this sense of like. Uh, confidence in stability because of what we're used to. And I was like, oh, in some sense, um, leaving is its own form of stability, which is, it seems kind of counterintuitive. <laughs> yeah, talk a little bit more about that. I'm really curious. What gave you the confidence in knowing that this was the right thing for you? Yeah, um, that was, yeah, that was definitely really hard. I can't, yeah, I guess what I was saying again, it's, it is very, like emotional where it's like if I was trying to like calculate all these things you know like oh how much money do I need which I did all those things um and my parents were very concerned um <laughs> uh, they're like hey make sure you can like sustain yourself and um figure out how you deal with insurance and uh healthcare and your apartment and like all these things um but I felt like even when I figured all that out it's that all that stuff didn't help me make that decision in the end, right? And so that's why I feel like it's still the leap of faith of like, you can pretend that you have all the certainty through the numbers, but I think the way we usually act is uh, pretty (laughs) emotional, right? Um, There's got to be like, um, what I would say is like, there's a conviction, a positive, I would say like dream or vision that you have about things. I mean, that's not true for everything, but I think for something like quitting your job to do something on your own, like a startup or in this case, you know, open source full time. Um, I don't see what else would convince you, you know, in your rational brain to actually do something like this. Taking that leap from a full time consistent job to working for yourself is a big one and not for the faint of heart. But it's in those moments where we veer off from the expected path that we really grow. When Henry left Adobe, he became the maintainer of Babel, and it was a huge learning curve. There are so many lessons he learned along the way, like this one. Actually, just one that off the top of my head of like getting into Babel, like you don't actually need to know that much about a project to get involved in it. Like I said, I kind of knew a little bit about linters through my experience working on the other project, but I didn't know anything about compilers. I didn't study computer science in school. I never took a class on it. I never read the you know the books on it. I think most of the people in our team have never studied it either. Do you think that's an advantage, though? An advantage that there's no CS degree or nothing sort of institutional knowledge blocking you from building something like that? Yeah, I think it's there's definitely a trade-off, or it's it can be good and bad. So I think the the general sense would be if you're new, you know, the you're being naive is a good thing because it will let you try things that other people would say is impossible or like that's just dumb or a bad idea. Right, you'll do it anyway because you want to like learn something or prove something to yourself or other people, and that's why these projects come about. And all the older people might criticize that and like, well, we've already done this before. It's like, yeah, we've done this before many times. Um, this is just like the newest iteration of it, and it's that that's just how things move along. And maybe in JavaScript, we like to complain that there's always new things happening, but that's true of of anything, I guess. But yeah, I guess the other thing is that. 
if you are new, you might not look into the history. So you could be reinventing the wheel. Um, and it would be nice if the people that have been around longer and the people that are just new would talk to each other more. Um, we'd probably learn a lot more. <laughs> but th- that's that's a huge, like, that's an interesting topic too. Yeah, yeah. There was a, a good blog post about this. Uh, Steve Klabnik, who's like from Rust fame as well as Ruby and, and Rails. He wrote about how the Ruby community rebuilt everything that was in Java. And it was like they, they just wanted not to be Java the entire time to the point where they just built everything that was in Java, including the, the JVM, which is the RVM, that sometimes you could spend way too much time not being the thing that you're trying to not be uh, and then build up the entire library system and standard library that already exists in another language. Yeah, that is interesting. And you might say that's a waste of time, but I think you have to look into assuming that the people that did this, I mean, it's a lot of work to make a whole language from scratch. So you would hope that they have certain values and things that are opposed to the previous work. So if they cared about like flexibility or like expressibility of a language and that's not true in the other language, then they would have to prove that out. And it's not necessarily a waste of time because they probably weren't going to contribute to that language in the first place. So I wouldn't fault them for like not helping with the old stuff. I have this idea that there are people out there who use Babel when they don't even know that they're using it. And I wonder if you've ever encountered anybody who's like, oh my gosh, I totally use that. And how you feel about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, actually, all the time. I think in some sense, it will, it will happen more as time come, goes on. Um, given the nature of our project, it's a, it's a build tool. It's not a framework. You're not looking at the documentation all the time. So unlike a React or a Vue, you're not writing, like, you know how people would say, like, we write React components and you're looking for a React developer. No one's saying that we use Babel when we're Babel developer. No one says that. It's just, it's already implied. And so that's why it's like, it's never going to be top of mind. And the only time you notice Babel is when it doesn't work. And so everyone's always going to have negative opinions on it for the most part. Unless you've never encountered a bug, and that's probably true for 99% of people. And so like, oh, this is great. Um, but you know, some people try to push the limits of how, how these things work. And I don't feel bad in the sense of like, no one has to know who I am. That's not like an obligation because they use it. That's true. But at the same time, that hurts my ability and our team's ability to sustain the project. If nobody knows who we are, how are we going to convince anyone to like fund us or sponsor us? You need some level of awareness, if that makes sense. So I, li- I like to say that there's like these two extremes of knowing a maintainer. Either you don't know they exist, right, and it's like in your stack, but you don't even know that like there are volunteers working on this thing. You think it's like a company. You think Facebook's working on Babel, or it's a black box. The opposite is when they finally meet you, and I don't even have to like someone else will be like, "Oh yeah, this is Henry. He works on Babel." And say, "Oh wow, I use Babel," and then suddenly you're like this like celebrity that is like this programmer god, and like they don't even they don't even know how to like talk to you anymore. And it's like, dude, we're still like people, you know. <laughs> so that's that's hard. Babel has been sustained through a variety of means, like GitHub sponsors as well as Patreon and Open Collective. But the other part of sustainability is attracting community contributions that will keep the project going. It's more than just contributing code, but contributing to the project holistically and not just looking for a good first issue. If you think about it, um, in open source, it you like, oh, they need to be able to like make 
contributions or whatever. But then um, if we do think the project isn't about code, I don't want to just say it's a feeling, which sounds bad. But um, you know, you could say that they have a, a, some kind of passion in something. Or you, maybe you see a lack in your project and you see that they could help out in that way, right? Um, so it doesn't have to be that they made a PR, which I guess that makes it easy. You know, this person made like a few PRs and they got merged and they're continuing to respond. That's a pretty easy like win of like, okay, let's just add them in and ask if they want to con- continue to contribute. But you know, maybe if for, if it's for documentation or um, making content like videos or live stream, like all these other things, then it's almost like you kind of need to go out of your way to look for these because. The thing that you'll probably normally see is the people making PRs because you're on GitHub. Um, but I mean, in that particular sense of the PRs, but if they're on GitHub for different reasons, like they're commenting, maybe you don't notice, or they're in your Slack or your Discord or on Twitter. Um, and of course, that's another amount of work that they have to do. Um, I don't know how much of that can be really be automated, honestly. I think. GitHub could probably signal certain things to people, but that doesn't mean they have to like suggest that people do it. Uh, but being able to like show that to maintainers could be helpful if they happen to see it. Yeah, totally. I was listening to your podcast, and there was something you said about the differences in different communities. You know, when you're on GitHub, you're kind of thinking about work, even though you're interacting with this broad, big community. And then when you're gaming, you're still interacting with a big community, but there's this different feel to it. And there's this thing in gaming where, you know, back when a lot of games were being developed, a lot of the characters, you could go on being mean to each other, being mean to other characters. And then game developers started to give you different incentives to be nice. And I wonder if there are things within your community, sort of within Babel, that you try to incentivize people for, that you look for, and how other people are treating each other. Yeah, I don't know if there's anything in particular I did to make it easier for people to like be nice to each other. I, I think I kind of rely on the fact of either meeting in person or doing one-on-one with people to kind of build a personal relationship with people. Um, it's really easy to just chat like through a uh, text kind of thing, like Slack or something, and you could do all your work, which is very transactional, right? But like slowly you kind of get to know people, and I think it builds trust. And unfortunately, we can't really meet people in person anymore, so that that's there's that. But unfortunately, the platforms that we use are very transactional um, in, in terms of like everything's about the numbers and you know notifications and how many PRs are open. That's what's emphasized, and that's the culture that we're in. And it is really hard to push back against that kind of thinking because that's what's measurable. Gaming has historically dealt with a lot of toxicity in its own environment, so they have to make all these tools. Um, But the example I made of an actual design that a game did to make things not possible to do this is there's a game called Journey on PlayStation. um, And it's normally a single-player game, but you can play with other people. But they purposely didn't allow... You can't text anyone, you can't chat with them on voice. The only way that you interact is you kind of find them when they're doing your own thing. But then um, in the game, you can kind of like jump around and like glide. But when you kind of, I guess, touch the other person or you're near them, then you get your jump ability back. So you have an incentive to always, always be with them because you want to like be able to fly farther with that person. Um, and there's no way to like troll them or do anything negative. So I kind of incentivize you to always think of them as someone that's helping you. Um, and you can choose to go off on your own. 
But I think most people do tend to stay together for the duration of the whole game. And it's a pretty short game too. And the cool thing is at the end of the game, they, they tell you who the other person is, like their screen name. So if you wanted to, you could reach out to them. But otherwise, it's just bye and we'll never see them again. <laughs> Building community is about communication. Tools like Discord or GitHub Discussions can really help, but regardless of those tools, how we communicate is key, not only on GitHub, but in our society as well. Maybe that's why people are trying to find smaller groups of people where they can talk to certain things. Like so, like the view idea, um, they supposedly worked on that in private, right? And then people called them out and they said that was really bad. But there's a reason why they did that. They are still figuring out what view three is supposed to be. If they just told everyone that, then it's just going to cause miscommunication. Um, and so they're like, oh, why isn't everything open? Isn't it open source? And I think people have a very specific definition of what open source is. What's your definition? <laughs> uh, good question. Um, that, that's the thing. It's like, I don't know if I can put a definition anymore. It's in, in the terms of like, it depends on the context. You could say the baseline is that, yeah, your code is out in the open, it's free. That's like the base. But um, sort of like when we say that open source isn't just code, there's this whole like uh, ecosystem around it. There's, you know, in a sense, it's like a worldview that shapes how you think. So if I want to bring in like faith, you could say that being in a religion is just believing in God. You could say that and that it's true. But that reduces the faith just to belief. Um, it reduces the faith to just uh, your mind. It doesn't relate to like how you live your life. Um, and you could say that's the same as like um, you go to church on Sunday or you go to church on every Christmas or something and then or something like that. Or like I'm always on GitHub every day. Where are you spending your time? What are you thinking about? Uh, I think those questions shape what you might believe open source to be. Yeah, that's that. I think the the correlation that I would make from that with like the like church and religion is that like I could be I could be a user of Babel. Uh, doesn't mean I'm part of the community. Uh, it also doesn't mean I'm a contributor or a maintainer. But I happen to know how to change the sort of flags inside the Babel JSON or whatnot. Um, so I think maybe that's like the correlation. We can, we can drive to, I guess, land that home. So since you brought up your church, I was going to ask how they've been able to support you as you've been on this journey. Yeah, I, I think that it's, I mean, I feel, like, I feel like other than just going to therapy, maintainers, just like all people, we need people to talk with. And I think, unfortunately, the way that we do it a lot of times is rant about it on Twitter and then that doesn't feel good of complaining about you're in this position of doing open source. Um, and then people think you're not grateful for it or whatever. You know, you, you tweet little screenshots about people saying mean things. Um, but really what you need is to know that people care about you. They appreciate your work is doing and also that you're not alone. So I wanted to have this idea of like, oh, we should have like a what I called maintainers anonymous, right? It's like getting together and and just talking through things. We don't have the answers, right? But just knowing that other people are out there might help you to sustain yourself. And I think when you go into a therapist or, or being in church, it's like it's an opportunity for you, assuming it's a, a safe place for you to talk. Um, you can be vulnerable. You can share the struggles that you're dealing with, um, and a lot of times are not that different from work-related personal issues too, right? Um, within people or, or friend groups or your own family, um, and I think that's really helpful. Like a, a consistent group of people that you can meet up with and do that. Um, 
unfortunately, you know, I think church in the current state of things has its own problems the same because of the pandemic of not being able to meet in person. And I think that there's a lack of, you know, intimacy, uh, just like we started doing our meetups and conferences online. Uh, and it's like, is it the same? You know? Yeah, I, I would, I'd ask too as well. I wonder that taking that same correlation of church and how it operates and like you've experimented with like small groups and how that's working and per- potentially doing in-person house church, that same correlation to like open source and your community. I know you, you made the jump to do this full time. And I know for me, like work, you tend to have your, your small group, your community at work. That community didn't exist for you for work. It was potentially was an open source. So like, did you find community in a, a similar way through contributors, collaborators, or maintainers anonymous, as you mentioned before? Yeah, I think with open source, it's unfortunately and fortunately, uh, the whole point is that it's distributed and remote. Everyone on our team does live in a different place. And I think there was a point where maybe that's why I decided to, like I didn't really like going to conferences as much, but then I, I started doing it in the last like two years or so until COVID. Um, and we were able to meet up with a lot of the maintainers that um, are on the team in person for the first time, which is pretty great. Um, and I think just meeting once in person really helps build that connection when you finally meet in, um, online as well. Yeah, it's it's weird saying that the answer is just meet in person, but that that's how I feel. Yeah, well, then you really get to see how tall people are. Yeah. When I first met Brian, I was like, "Oh wow, you are really tall." Uh, I was going to add too as well. So we actually met in person a few times, uh, but the I think probably the last time we met in person was at Maintainerati uh, last summer for GitHub Satellite. There was an an extra event, uh, and at that event we. What I took away from that is a bunch of maintainers, uh, similar to Maintainer Anonymous, talk about like all insights of their projects. And one thing that I took away from it was that most maintainers, they start with the code thing, but they quickly move into all the other things, which is the community, the developer relations, the, the sort of getting the everything coordinated and releases and RFCs. I'm curious of like today, like how you maintain that, as well as like even, like again, we'll, we'll continue to use this church analogy. Like sometimes you could be looked at as like this sort of embodiment of the project, maybe the uh, Messiah of Babel. And so how do you sort of combat that and like be able to still be able to delegate and feel like people are involved? <laughs> That's a good analogy because it's like, I mean, at least in Christianity, it's supposed to be about Jesus, not about the cult of personality. That's totally a problem. Um I don't know. I, I, there's definitely a lot of delegation, and then also letting people have the spotlight. I don't, and it's really hard because, like, you know, I don't know how things happen, but like, why, why did, why am I the one that people, for some reason, associate with the project rather than all these other people on the project? Um, and a lot of it might be because they don't really want to be in the in front. Um, they they do only want to do the code. And I don't want to like push them to do things they don't want to do, but like sometimes I'll ask them like, "Hey, you should give a talk, or you should like, you should be on this podcast, or or something like that." And getting them to think a little bit more holistically about the project because I think that that will help them be a better just coder anyway. Um, and I yeah, I've kind of like stepped away from doing the the main I guess coding as much, even though there's plenty of work to be done everywhere. It's sort of like it's it really is like an awareness, right? It's like when you start off like what you said, Brian, it is all about code. And then slowly as you get part of the community, you meet more people, you see that there are all these other parts that are probably not even being done. And then you see a lack and maybe you want to contribute in that way. 
Um, or at least you'll point it out. And you know, we're never gonna finish any of it, just like the inbox zero stuff. Um, it's just, it's the same in all the non-measurable things too. And you have to learn to, and I haven't really learned this, but you have to learn to like be okay with not finishing everything. Are there uh, Babel disciples? Are you setting that up? <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't set it up like that. But but I do think this uh, the idea of membership is really interesting. So like church has membership, and you might have to go through a class. It, it's it's just a way of like showcasing commitment and responsibility. And I think that would be beneficial to have in open source. It's not to kind of do an in-group, out-group thing, but it's more of like, okay, we can rely on you for this. And maybe that requires uh, um, even the aspect of like terms where like you don't feel like you're going to serve forever. And unfortunately, the way things work culturally now is that you feel like you're going to have to be in, like if maybe I feel like I have to work on Bell for my whole life, um, even though obviously I don't have to, I can leave at any point. There's a lot of thinking around, yeah, like that freedom and what that looks like. I think it's safe to say that all of us, whether we work in a traditional job or we work for ourselves, have thought about what it would be like to leave. It's just part of being alive, questioning what it would be like if, and I'm sure Henry has felt the same way. There's definitely many times where I'm just like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I even felt this recently with with the pandemic of like, all these things are happening, you know, what am I even doing that's going to help with this situation at all? I'm just doing open source. And it's like this really random tool that has nothing to do with, you know, healthcare or all that stuff, right? And you you can argue that that's in all these websites, but it's very like secondary thing. This is interesting. I read this essay from uh, C.S. Lewis, of all people. He actually had this thing called learning in wartime. And he was talking about how, yeah, I think he gave a lecture to a bunch of students um, they're studying like you know literature or something, right? And this is during the war, and so they asked him the same question: like, why am I studying the arts and like math when like this war is going on? Is it even worth working on? I think that's the same feeling that we have. And he was saying that like, if you thought that way to the extreme, then you would never do any of these things. It's never worth it to study literature because there's always something bad happening. We are always going to be in this conflict, whether it's war or something else, people are going to die and all this stuff. Um, and so you have to, I guess, step a bit, a bit back. Doesn't mean you don't think about the thing at all, but it shouldn't be the only thing focused on your mind because that will overwhelm your sense, you know, the whole doom scrolling thing, right? How do you balance what you're living for and what you're willing to die for? And I think the thing that you're living for is not solving this war or the pandemic or whatever. That's just a thing that will pass away, but we need to worry about it in the moment. Um, and it can't take over everything. So I, I just, I guess the summary is honestly just like think long term. I guess it's like you have a hope inside of you that things will get better. And so it's still worth working on the, these things. Um, like I think we've been talking about that the whole conversation of like, you can't know things for certain. Um, and so you kind of have to take that risk. And that means you're risking failure and you're risking being wrong. And you kind of, yeah, that's the, that's the leap of faith. Excellent. Yeah, I was just going to say that I drew a lot of those correlations uh, in our conversation uh, between how you're managing community in your church, managing community in Babel, and sort of doing this whole open source thing. And uh, I think the, the the conversation, just in general, uh, I should truly appreciate you being so open with us, like being able to share your your maintainer story, I guess. 
Yeah, I was thinking a lot about these spaces we occupy as we continue to talk to each other on Zoom. And I'm in San Francisco, Brian's in Oakland, and you're in New York. But, you know, we're all talking to each other. We're here with each other on Zoom, but where are we? And I met you online today. It was really, really great to meet you. And thank you so much for doing all of this. To learn more about Henry and his work on Babbel, you can check out his feature on the README project, GitHub's ongoing effort to amplify voices of open source software at github.com slash README. His site, henryzoo.com, or tune into his podcast, Hope and Source and Maintainers Anonymous. I'm Brian Douglas, and I'm a developer advocate here at GitHub. And I'm Kathy Korovec, and I work on the product team here at GitHub. The Read Me podcast is a GitHub podcast that dives deep into the challenges our guests face and how they overcame those hurdles. In sharing these stories, we hope to provide a spotlight on what you don't always see in the lines of code and what it took to build the technology that inspires us all. It has been such an extreme pleasure to spend time with you. All music here has been produced by the wonderful Dan Gorlick using Python, the programming language for everyone. The README podcast is produced by SoundMain Public for GitHub. Please subscribe, share, and follow GitHub on Twitter for updates on the podcast, as well as all things about GitHub.